Heavenly Father, it's a little warm today, Father. We're in the middle of our summertime. And so, Father, sometimes as we incur, encounter the heat of the summer here in Texas, uh, it causes us to uh, think about going elsewhere. Maybe uh, as a vacation, maybe permanently. Sometimes, Father, it's hot enough here, we wonder, should we be here? And, Father, that's, that's just the normal seasonal variety of life that you've given us here on earth, that some days would be warm, some days would be cool. But, Father, we're so thankful that we live under your hand, under your grace, in a relationship with you that means that no matter what circumstances we encounter here, good days, bad days, whether the weather is to our liking or not, whether we have all that we wish to have or not, that none of this, Father, is our permanent home. None of this is what we have to look forward to for eternity. On its worst day, Father, it's still passing. And on its best, on our best days, Father, we can't afford to be too invested in what we love. For it is all, Father, temporary and leading somewhere better. And we're thankful, Father, that we have that better plan waiting us. Because it keeps us focused, Father. It keeps us thinking about you and about things to come and about serving you in the meantime. And we confess, Father, sometimes our hearts are turned away, that we become distracted. This world starts to become too important. Our concerns become too big and our desires, our love for things, Father, becomes too strong. And I ask, Lord, that as we return now into this study of Ezekiel and into the circumstances of his life and of his people's lives, that you'd remind us that as bad as things might have been for them, it was passing. And as bad as things may be for us some days, it's passing as well. And while you had glory in the text waiting for them, things that they could look forward to, you teach them these things through Ezekiel, Father. We have the same. And Lord, these are the things that ground us. Your word most of all. We thank you, Father, for that encouragement, for that reminder today. Help us to be uh, mindful, to be thinking about eternal things in the midst of our day-to-day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Ezekiel today, we're going to be talking about delivering the truth. We're going to be talking about delivering the truth of God's Word, specifically. Delivering it to people who may not necessarily want to hear it. The truth is not their preference. There's an old joke, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but I'll repeat it anyway. A joke of a son who wakes up one Sunday morning and he declares to his mother, I'm not going, he says, I'm not going to church this morning. And his mother says, why aren't you going to church? He says, because no one likes me. Everyone says unkind things about me, and whenever I try to join up with a group of people, they all stop talking and they walk away from me. And then he adds, plus the sermons are boring. And the mother replies kindly, oh son, you have to go to church. And the son says, why do I have to go to church? And the mother replies, because you're the pastor. (laughs) Maybe you haven't heard it, I don't know. Maybe it's just pastors who tell it to each other, I don't know. But you know, like any good joke, there's a grain of truth somewhere in there. And that grain of truth, I think, is that in some cases, as God asks his under-shepherds to speak the truth, in some cases, as we speak it, as we try to live it out, as we try to serve him faithfully, there can be, from time to time, people in God's flock who prefer different things to what they hear and see in their leaders. Though they say they like all those things, they sometimes act in ways that tell you they don't. And it leads them sometimes to inflict poor treatment upon their their leaders. And I'm not speaking out of personal experience, not from our experience here, but as a general rule. 
Because God wants his people to teach the truth, to tell the truth, right? That's his intent. And we say we like it when our leaders tell us the truth, of course, except when that truth hurts our feelings. And God will tell us through his word that he expects his leaders to be good role models. And we certainly agree that we want good role models in our leadership, unless we're convicted by that example. And God would expect faithfulness from women and men in ministry generally. And I know we all respect faithfulness in our leaders, but when their faithfulness to the truth gets in the way of what we want, well, then we stop calling it faithfulness and we call it stubbornness. So you could say, in a sense, we want it all. We want God-fearing leaders who do what we want. And it's just human nature. Now, I know we don't all think that way, and hopefully we don't think that way all the time, but in the worst of cases, when God's people wander away from His Word and from His Spirit, they will go as far as rejecting His servants, though the servants do the right thing. They'll even go so far as to kill those sent to them. Jesus said that Himself, as you may remember, in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven, Speaking to Israel, He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Ezekiel will experience this same pattern himself, and the Lord is preparing him for that, as we see now in his commissioning. So let's rejoin the story where we left off last week in chapter 2. This is where the Lord is explaining to Ezekiel, here's your commission, Ezekiel, here's what I'm calling you to do, here's what you're going to be for me among the people of Israel. And oh, by the way, it's not going to be a walk in the park. And he says in verse 6, And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words. Those thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Neither fear their words, nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Earlier in verse 5, last week as we studied, the Lord had told Ezekiel that Israel was rebellious, you remember that, and he implied that they were going to be likely to ignore what he told them. So now what the Lord says to Ezekiel is, given that, do not fear their response. The Lord uses the word fear three times here in verse 6. He says, don't fear them. Don't fear their words. Don't fear their presence. You know, when people don't like the message, what do they tend to do? Threaten the messenger. We often say that, right? Don't, don't kill the messenger. So the Lord knows Ezekiel's going to encounter fear in the course of fulfilling his duties because he's going to go up against a group of people who don't like what they're hearing. And he warns him, do not give in to this emotion. Do not give in to your fear. And specifically, don't fear them personally, nor fear what they're going to say to you. And he uses some figurative language here to allude to what is coming for Ezekiel. And he says, be prepared for thistles, thorns, and scorpions. And all those terms are describing the people of Israel. They're not literal, although I'm not saying he didn't encounter those things as well. But he's pointing back here to the people of Israel, a rebellious people. They have rebellion in their hearts. And as they hear the word of God, those two things come into clash with one another. The truth impinges on their selfish, sinful desires. They feel conviction. And as a result, they are going to rip at him like a thorn. They're going to prick at him like a thistle. They're going to sting him, as it were, like a scorpion. All those things suggest hurt, discomfort, injury. Yes. But in the end, think about those three things God used. He didn't talk about bears and lions. He talked about little things. Because in the end, those responses from the people of God are not going to be worthy of fear. Just as thorns, thistles, and scorpions, generally speaking, will not kill a man, well, neither will Israel's harsh words against Ezekiel harm him or silence him. 
Right? They're not that serious. And that's because the Lord's going to be protecting him, and there's only so much the people of God can do against him. And therefore, he says, you should have no fear. And he adds, because of this, because of what I'm telling you, you need to go and speak what I give you to speak, whether they listen or not. Now, this is the second time the Lord has said to Ezekiel, speak to them whether they hear you or not. And we all love to speak when people are willing to listen, don't we? This is human nature. Some of us love it a little too much. But we all have that desire that if someone's listening, we feel important, we feel appreciated, it encourages us, we just keep going. The worst of us keep going even when people say they don't want to listen anymore, right? But the the point is, we all know that feeling. Conversely, you also know what it feels like to be ignored, right? What is the modern day way that we communicate to someone that we want to ignore them? So you're talking to someone, and you're standing there, and, oh, that's very, yes, it's, oh, yeah, very much, loud, yeah. A tweet just came through. Hold on a second, I've got to see what this is all about. All right, that's, that's being ignored. How do you feel when you see that? You just sort of trail off from what you're saying, don't you? You just sort of go silent. You know, you wait for the attention to come back because you understand what it means. And that's a way of reacting negatively. And when you encounter that, when someone reacts negatively to what you're saying, and it makes you feel bad, makes you feel uncomfortable, you begin to make assumptions. I mean, most people do. And some of those assumptions are, well, did I just say something wrong? You're not interested in what I have to say anymore? Or maybe I should just stop talking altogether? And in fact, as I said, most of us will eventually just walk away or stop talking as we get ignored. And in some cases, that's the proper response. In other words, sometimes we were off track, we were saying the wrong thing, we were being boring, and it was probably good that we learned that. But in other cases, just because someone stops listening, it's not necessarily because we did the wrong thing. In fact, sometimes it's because we did the right thing. Sometimes people stop listening because they didn't want to hear what they needed to hear. And even as you may have said it in love, and even if you said it with great kindness, they wanted no part of it. Now, if you're the kind of person who cannot bear to hurt someone's feelings, and you constantly need approval from other people, then you are not likely to handle that situation very well. You're going to be tempted to hide the truth. You're going to be tempted to choose flattery instead of fact. You're going to be tempted to favor tactfulness over truth. The Bible says we are not permitted to do that in cases where the Lord has called us specifically to speak truth. I'm not suggesting here we all have this open-ended commission to just go out speaking the truth to everybody at all times. That's a quick way to end up lonely because it's not necessarily edifying. But there are moments, there are situations, there are places where you are the authority or where you have the insight or where God has called you into a role. And in those cases, you have an obligation to do what's right. And sometimes that means saying something that someone else may not want to hear, but they need to hear it. Concealing the truth is not loving. So God demands Ezekiel to be prepared for this. I want you to be prepared for this mission. You have to speak the truth, Ezekiel, regardless of how it makes Israel feel or how their response makes you feel. Don't let fear drive your response. In fact, because Ezekiel's already on notice about what's going to happen, he doesn't have that excuse anymore. right? If you're told ahead of time this is what's going to happen, you can't then, when it happens, turn around and say to God, well, I can't do this, look what just happened. He's going to know this in advance. Israel is going to make you feel very uncomfortable. And, therefore, what does he say? Talk all the more. Keep going whether they listen or not. Now, for some of us, if we were in Ezekiel's place, this revelation would be enough all by itself to cause us to disobey the call of the Lord, not to go and do what he's just asked us to do. You're telling me I'm going to have to go say these things and they're going to be terribly upset at me? I I don't want to do that. 
Some folks just cannot bear the thought of being rejected. I mean, none of us like it. I'm not saying this is something we should embrace. But for some of us, it's such an impediment that our social status and our relationships in life will trump our relationship with God. The Bible calls that fearing men instead of fearing God. Now, there's a balance, and I hope you hear me in the right way. I'm not saying you have to be a pain in the neck to be truthful or to be obedient. What I'm saying, though, is there is a time at places in your life where you have to be willing to tell someone what they don't want to hear if you're going to do the best thing for them. We all know this instinct of shying away from conflict. It comes at different ways, at different stages of our life, and it's somewhat culturally dependent. Some cultures are far more worried about this than others. In in Asia, for example, when I go and I travel there and I teach, one of the things I encountered early on in the culture there that I had to get used to was that in their culture, it's considered offensive for someone to ask a question of the pastor. So a basic Bible question is offensive because it's perceived as a challenge to the authority of the pastor, as if the pastor has not taught it properly, or as if the person's questioning whether the pastor knows their, their business or not. Which is interesting because when I travel and I take questions voluntarily and willingly, you know, at first they don't ask any. And then I sort of warm up the crowd, make sure they understand it's okay, and then it's just like a tidal wave because they've had you know, 10 years of waiting for someone to answer a question. That's an issue of culture. But we all have it to some degree. In our culture, it goes like this in phases of life. As children or teens, what we tend to worry about is being cool and being liked and being accepted among our peers. As you move into a young adulthood, it moves to things like wanting to find the right spouse or getting the right job or getting into the right neighborhood, having all of those identities in the right place. And then as we get older, now we're worrying about whether our kids like us or we're worrying about whether our boss likes us or whether our pastor approves of us. Actually, that last one, never mind. No one ever thinks about that. But those other ones are real. So here's the point. We all know in our own ways, at our own stages of life, what it looks like to seek the world's approval. And we're constantly doing it whether we perceive it or not. But inevitably, and here's the point, inevitably, standing up for the truth, standing up for the gospel, for Christ, in this world, will eventually get in the way of pursuing those things. Inevitably, it will get in the way. And when you find that conflict, you're going to be tempted to run the wrong direction. Because if standing for Christ as a child, means the cool kids in the playground mock you, well, then you might be tempted to think, well, maybe I just keep my views to myself. I mean, I'm still a Christian. I just won't say anything about it. Or if holding to biblical standards for relationships means losing that boy or girl that we want to date, well, then we may be willing to compromise a little bit on those standards. Or when obeying the Lord's call on your life would mean turning down a promotion, giving up on your lifestyle, well then, yeah, maybe we just leave Jesus to Sunday mornings. When you choose that other path that pleases the world, that seeks for their approval, you're disobeying the Lord. You can't serve two masters. So you join the rebellion of those who oppose the Lord when you align yourselves with them in your actions or in your words. And that's what the Lord is worried about with Ezekiel. That's what he wants Ezekiel to understand is an issue here. Look what he says next to him in verse 8. This is the very point. He says, Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I'm giving you. And then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. And when he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and the back. And written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. That's a bit odd, right? Just took a left turn here we didn't expect. But the Lord is reminding Ezekiel here that if you should give in to your fear of these people, that is, if you want their approval more than you want my approval in this mission, you're joining their rebellion. And that means you're fearing them more than you fear me. 
That is to say, the one sent to convict the nation of Israel would now find himself guilty of the very same crime. He said, we can't have that. And to illustrate to Ezekiel what God expected, he prepares a little object lesson for him here. He hands him a scroll, it says, written on the front and back. Now, normally scrolls were only written on one side. Have you ever seen a Torah scroll among Jews today that still have a, a, a relatively orthodox lifestyle? They go to a synagogue, they read the scroll. If you've ever seen them open the scroll, it's only written on one side. That's traditional. That's typically how scrolls were used. But in a few cases, among legal documents of various kinds, you might see writing on front and back. They'd be issued by a magistrate. They'd be writing in very specific ways. And this scroll would seem to be that kind of document, a legal document. Now, we have to imagine maybe why it has this writing on both sides. What kind of legal document would it be? We're not given any detail. But perhaps on the inside, you might have found the terms of the covenant that both parties had agreed to keep. And perhaps on the outside of the scroll, you might have found the violations of that agreement and the penalties that must follow. I say that's perhaps what's happening here because it says the scroll contains lamentations and mourning and woe. We're talking now about what's coming for Israel because of their sins under the old covenant. Whatever it's there for, the Lord then tells the prophet, eat this scroll. Now here's the object lesson for Ezekiel. And an object lesson, by the way, it's a striking practical example of some principle or ideal that you want someone to remember. So it's designed to leave a powerful impression, and one you won't forget. And certainly eating a scroll is going to leave a powerful impression on someone, right? So what's the message the Lord wants him to remember by eating this scroll with writing on both sides? Well, turning to chapter 3, here's what we find. Verse 1. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I'm giving you. And then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. So the Lord repeats the instructions to eat, and notice what happens first. Ezekiel just opens his mouth, and then the Lord feeds him like we would feed a baby, just putting the scroll in his mouth. Now, we don't exactly know what this looked like. And I'm assuming there's a degree of supernatural work going on here. But on the other hand, it doesn't have to be. I mean, you can eat paper. It's not healthy, but you could do it. The point is not the physical thing happening here. There's obviously a metaphor, a message implied by what he's doing. We're just told he opens his mouth, the Lord feeds him, and then he tells Ezekiel, let this fill your stomach, let it fill your body. What does he mean? Well, as Ezekiel experiences this, he notices first it's sweet in his mouth as honey. And honey is important because honey is the sweetest thing Israel had. They didn't have corn syrup. They didn't have sugar in any other form. So if you wanted the sweetest thing you could find in that day and age in Israel, it was honey. And so what Ezekiel is essentially saying is it couldn't have tasted better. So what's the point? Well, first the Lord is teaching Ezekiel, number one, to be bold. The word of the Lord, and this is a picture now in the scroll, the word of the Lord left a sweet taste in his mouth, which then would have been an encouragement for him to speak it, to share it. That's true even though it was filled with mourning and lamentations and woe. Even though it foretold terrible things that are going to happen to Israel as a result of their sin under their covenant with the Lord, even though they had those devastating things in the message, Nevertheless, Ezekiel could take comfort knowing that sharing the word of the Lord is always a good thing. Do you hear that? It doesn't matter what the content of it is, sharing it is always a good thing. The word of the Lord is sweet regardless of what it contains because it advances the program of God. And that program is always going somewhere good. Now for Israel, 
These lamentations were advancing the plan of God concerning the next phase for that nation. They were going to go through some tough things, things that they had reason to experience based on their disobedience to the covenant. But what's the outcome of those things? Ultimately, where they're leading Israel is to a reconciliation, to their Messiah, ultimately to the kingdom. The message that Ezekiel is going to present to Israel has all of these things in the message. He's going to talk about the bringing forth of the judgments under the current covenant. He's going to talk about a new covenant coming. And he's going to ultimately talk about a kingdom that comes to the Israel that was promised to receive it. You don't get to stage 10 until you've gone through stages 1 through 9, so to speak. So as the word of the Lord is spoken, as it goes into action, as it's brought to pass, you're moving somewhere and that movement is good. The same is true for us. I mean, not that we're Israel, but what I'm saying is, as the Lord brings us difficulties in our life, whatever they may be, and as unpleasant as they may be, they're good. You know, James says, count it all joy, brethren, when you face various trials, because there's something good in it, a testing of your faith, and that testing produces good outcomes. You can't get there from here unless you're willing to go through the process. So that anything that comes to us by the hand of the Lord is a good thing in the end. Because it's moving us somewhere. So maintaining that perspective through trial allows you to participate in it, to understand it, and gain the benefits of it. They will have difficult things they have to experience, but it's leading somewhere good. Friends, you may know someone who has to understand that they're in the middle of of a problem, of a trial, because God's taking them somewhere. And if they're too busy saying, I don't want to hear about it, I don't want to know about it, I want to ignore it, or just having a pity party over it, they're not getting the benefit out of it. Maybe you're the one who's going to explain it properly. Sharing truth about why things are the way they are, difficult as they may be, is good. It's sweet in the end. It's a blessing, even if they don't want to hear it. It's a blessing even if you don't want to hear it. It's better for a person to know the truth so that they can get right with God now than to have them live ignorantly to the day they face Him where they have no excuse. And also, I should add, remember that a person's initial response to bad news, truthful bad news, is never a good measure for how that truth will impact them in the long run. Don't let their first reaction guide your thinking. We need to give time for God's Word to work in their heart. So when you speak truth in love by the Spirit, your next step is to trust that the Lord has some good in it and He'll work through that good. Give Him space. Give Him time. And for that matter, even if no one ever listens, even if they never heed the instructions, you can at least know you've been faithful to the task. You've been faithful to God's Word. That's the sweetness of God's Word. So the first point in the object lesson is, what you have been given is sweet, share it. Secondly, the object listen reveals that the prophet has a small but important part in sharing that word. You notice God assigned Ezekiel a small part in this object lesson. He asked him to open his mouth. I mean, we know God has all the power that there is, so there's nothing Ezekiel could have done to frustrate the will of God. I'm not suggesting that. But the fact that God asked him to do something is important. It suggests that God is looking for the prophet to take a step of obedience. He says, open your mouth. And today, any of us who are called to share the Word of God with somebody, there's an expectation placed on us by the Spirit of God that we would fulfill that calling. We would do what we're told to do. You ever had that feeling when you've been somewhere in public, a grocery store, uh, I don't know, school somewhere, and you just had some sense that some random person you should talk to or you should share the Word of God with? The lady checking you out at the grocery store. Have you ever felt like that? Even just in a fleeting moment? Now, honestly, how many times have you acted on that? My point is, if you're listening to the Lord and He's telling you to do something like that, you're not responsible for the outcome, but He's asking you to open your mouth. We should not pass those by because we're missing opportunity to participate in the program of God in someone else's life. 
So if a prophet refuses to do what he's told to do, the word of God isn't going to go. Not through that person. Paul reminds us that in Romans 10, 14, when he says, How will they call on him who they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? This is basic math. And you can consider the example of Jonah, by the way. When he was told to go talk to a certain group of people in Nineveh, he ran the opposite direction. Remember that? His disobedience stood in the way of the Lord delivering that message through him to that people. So what did the Lord have to do? He persuaded Jonah to change his mind and do what he was asked to do. But notice also, Ezekiel has to open his mouth. There's a small part to play. But then what follows? The Lord feeds him the scroll. Ezekiel didn't feed himself. That's not a meaningless distinction. It illustrates that as a prophet obeys his call, or as anyone obeys the call to share the word of God, the Lord puts the words in our mouth. They're not our words. He didn't have to be eloquent. Ezekiel didn't have to come up with some compelling message. He didn't need a three-point sermon and a PowerPoint in order to go out and do what God called him to do. He just had to say what God told him to say. Because anything that a prophet shares that's worthwhile is from the Lord. Same for us. When you share the Word of God with someone, you don't need to embellish it. You don't need to sugarcoat it. It's already sweet enough. And that's true whether you're a teacher or an evangelist or you're just someone who shares a word with a neighbor over a cup of coffee at your kitchen table. doesn't matter what your role or background is. The only thing of value that any of us have to offer the world is the Word of the Lord. I have nothing better to offer than you do. You have nothing better to offer than I do. It's already sweet enough. It's far better than anything we could invent. So, just open your mouth and share the Word of God accurately. That's point number two. Thirdly, what he's illustrating is that a messenger of God must internalize that message before we go out sharing it with others. You notice he tells Ezekiel, let it fill your stomach. But more than that, let your whole body be filled with this thing. That is, before you become an effective messenger of God, you have to take it in yourself. And I'm not trying to overextend the metaphor here. I'm simply saying the obvious. You need to understand it. I mean, you have to know it. Maybe you just have to have a Bible with you, but you still got to know where to open it, right? And it wouldn't hurt if you memorized some pieces of it. It wouldn't hurt if you meditated on some aspects of it so that you have that ready to go when you need it. Because if you don't have a good grasp of God's Word, then when the time comes to share it, you're going to be empty. You're going to be struggling. You know, you're going to come up with things like, well, God helps those who help themselves. You'll have these misquoted, half-truth, folklore kind of versions of Scripture that you'll throw out at people for lack of any real knowledge. And those thoughts are worthless. You understand? What we have to share humanly is worthless. I, I don't mean in the literal sense. Certainly you might have a good piece of advice from your own parenting experience or your own relationship experience. That's fine and dandy. But on spiritual issues, on things that are eternally weighty, you don't have anything to offer. You didn't know anything anyway. None of us did. You'd be like one of Job's three friends. If you know the story of Job, after he goes through a bunch of calamity, he sits around with three guys who have no idea what they're talking about and share with them all manner of thought that go nowhere. They had a lot to say, but they didn't know the Word of God well enough to help him. That's fundamentally what we're doing when we reach into someone's life to help them and we're not bringing the Word of God to do it. It goes a little deeper than that, though. When he says we internalize the Word of God, he doesn't just mean it's up here. You notice he says your whole body. Which is to say, it means living it out. You, it has to be who you are, not just what you know. Right? Nothing robs our message of power faster than hypocrisy. Try telling someone else they should stop smoking while you're holding a cigarette. I mean, that message had no validity. Absolutely no validity. We all disobey the word from time to time. I'm not saying you have to be perfect. But thankfully, no one in the world expects you to be perfect. 
So that's not even a concern. We're not saying you have to have no sin before you're a valid messenger of God. What we're saying, though, is there's a difference. The audience can tell the difference between someone who speaks truth out of conviction versus someone who's just trying to sell them a story that we don't even believe ourselves. And that's all the difference in the world between being effective and being useless. If you want others to live according to the Word of God, well, at least be sure you're making an honest effort to do the same in your own life. Finally, the last point. The Lord taught Ezekiel that unless he found his supply in the Word, he wouldn't last very long before a rebellious Israel. Ask yourself this. What strengthens you when your audience turns against you? Even if you don't think of yourself as one of those people who are needy, who want approval, it all affects us sooner or later. If you literally had everyone you knew turn their back on you, reject you, where would you find your supply? Where would you go for approval? And if you're telling yourself, well, I don't need approval. I can be just fine if no one liked me. We say that, but it's not true. I don't know of anyone who really feels that way in the long run. Because either you're living for the world's approval somewhere, or you're living by the word of God and the approval of God. Jesus said this in Matthew 4.4, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What he means when he says living for bread, he means living for what the world offers in all respects. But living by the word of God means living for what God provides. And those two things are always in opposition. So whatever the world approves and desires, the word of God opposes. And whatever the world approves, the word of God condemns and vice versa. Whatever the Lord approves, the world generally rejects. So the only way you're going to withstand the world's disapproval, if you are a messenger of God and you are truthful to the, to the message, the only way you're going to survive in that role is if you can be supplied, if you can be approved by God. If the Word of God and your adherence to the truth of the Word of God is enough for you. In theory, it all sounds fine, right? It's all very academic. Try it sometime, though. Try living one day in absolute conformance to the Word of God and to speak the same. And you'll be surprised, in fact, at how much compromise has become a part of your everyday life. How much you're willing to kind of go with the crowd to avoid their disapproval. You have to understand, the more you reflect who God is, the more the world will hate you. And you don't have to be pious. You don't have to be a pain in the neck. Jesus was none of those things. Remember, Jesus was absolutely perfect, never made a mistake, never sinned once. He lived the word perfectly. And what was the result in his world? They put him on a cross. Yes, there were people who loved him. There were those who, by the movement of the Spirit in their hearts, came to see him as Lord, and they followed him in devotion. But where were they on the day he died? They weren't at the cross. Even the best of them ran away. So you can only withstand the world's rejection and hatred of your message if you find satisfaction in the very thing they hate. So we are to be bold, knowing that God's word is good, no matter what it says. We are to go to deliver the word of God, because he's told us to, but we deliver what he gives us, not our own thoughts. We live it out so that we have validity behind the message, And we take satisfaction in God's approval of what we're doing. That's what he asked Ezekiel to do. And then the Lord gives Ezekiel a final word. This is verses 4 through 11. He gives him a final word of exhortation and encouragement. He says in verse 4, Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language whose words you cannot understand, but I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. 
Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, take into your heart all my words which I will speak to you, and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them, and tell them, whether they listen or not, thus says the Lord God. Now there's all the themes we've studied already repeated there. We don't need to take them all in detail. Once more, he just refers Israel, uh, refers to Ezekiel as a son of man. He's just reminding him, you're a clay vessel. You're from the dirt, son of Adam, literally is what he says here. But I have filled you. So like a jelly donut, the filling is what counts. And in this case, he's filled by the scroll being the picture. He's filled by the Word of God. He's filled by the Spirit. So then he says, now I want you to go out and speak. Notice he says, speak with my words. You notice that? Very interesting phrase, with. In other words, his will to speak and the content of what he speaks are going to be according to the will of God. He's not just speaking what God says. He's speaking by means of God's power through his Word to do that. And then notice he says, this power, this ability I'm giving you, is not intended to compensate because of some human limitation that you're going to encounter in your audience. He says, no, I'm sending you to the house of Israel. This is not a a group of people that have a different language. In Hebrew, that phrase literally translates, I'm not sending you to a people of deep lip. There's only two places this this, uh, phrase occurs in the scripture, here and in Isaiah. And in both cases, it's a euphemism for a stranger, foreign people. So what he's saying is, I'm not sending you to foreigners. I'm sending you to Israel. And moreover, he says, I'm not sending you to people of a difficult language. That translates heavy tongue. And you may remember that phrase from uh, Exodus. That's the phrase that Moses uses to describe himself when God says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And he says, I am a man of a heavy tongue, heavy mouth. And what it means is someone who doesn't speak well. They're not eloquent. They don't communicate well. So what he's saying to Ezekiel is, you're not going to be speaking to people who can't use normal language, who aren't able to communicate, to foreigners. And then he adds in verse 6, I'm not even sending you to Gentiles. That is, people of strange languages. So I'm sending you not to Gentiles, not to people who can't talk, not to people with a foreign language. I'm just sending you to your own people who know Hebrew very well. He says, men and women who should appreciate what you're saying, who should listen... To what you tell them, but then he adds, they won't. So what are we learning about their disobedience? Why are they not going to listen? There's no human barrier. The only answer is because, because they're rebellious. They don't want to listen. They're unwilling to listen. They have been unwilling to listen to him in the past, he says, and because they won't listen to me, you're not going to do any better. Remember this truth, friends, the next time you find yourself as a messenger of God's word to someone or some group who is unwilling to listen. You cannot do better than God. If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, then they will not believe, even if someone should rise from the dead, Jesus says in Luke 16. The point is, you can't do a big enough miracle to bring faith when the Word of God is not bringing faith. It's not possible. That's an important principle, because you are not then required to go fix a problem that you do not have the power to solve. But let me tell you, a lot of people try. What they try to do is find a better message that's more appealing. Because the one they thought was going to work stopped working. And they're determined to get success one way or the other. When someone lives in disobedience to the Word of God, it's rarely because they lack understanding or they lack the capacity to obey. Most of the time it's because they don't want to obey. And that means it's a matter of will. We're talking about will. 
So don't be tempted, tempted to change the message to retreat from the truth just because someone's got a stubborn heart. You cannot get around a stubborn heart by giving them a better message. What you've done is confirm their stubbornness. You ever tried that with a child, by the way? The child who says they want candy before dinner and you're going to give them a, a carrot and they say no to the carrot? Do you help them by giving them the candy instead? What's more important, their agreement with you or their agreement with a truth principle that's important to you? I want them to agree with the principle that they should eat better and not ruin their appetite for dinner. That's the principle. That's what I want them to agree to. That's what counts. Whether they agree with me or not, that's secondary. When you reverse those two things, you stop serving the truth, you start serving yourself. Remember last week I explained what the word stubborn in Hebrew literally meant. It means hard face. That's what the word in Hebrew means. Now you see in verse 8, the Lord makes a play on those words. When he tells Ezekiel, they have a hard face, I'm going to make your face harder. In fact, I'm going to make your whole head hard. They're going to be stubborn, so I'm going to make you even more resolved, more persistent to deliver truth against their stubbornness. They may resist the Lord, but you're going to persevere against that. But you're not persevering because ultimately you're going to win them over. The reason for your hardening, so to speak, is to equip you so that you will go the distance against this adversary. You won't stop talking just because they stop listening. Just because they're not caring what you think anymore. You remember the case of Pharaoh in the time of Egypt when God sent Moses to Pharaoh and they had the little confrontation over the ten plagues? But you remember it says in the text that Pharaoh was hardening his heart, hardening his heart, hardening, and then it stops saying Pharaoh was hardening his heart and it starts saying the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. What you see happening around plague six is that the work of the Lord through those plagues started to add up to the point where Pharaoh was no longer willing to go any further. He had had enough. Come on, who can blame him? Six plagues from the Lord. He was in pretty bad shape at that point. He was ready to call it a day. Let him go. And God said, no, 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 no. I've got ten of these planned. The last one is when I show a picture of my son in the Passover. We can't stop. We've got to go ten. You want to stop at six? Sorry, not an option. I'm hardening your heart to make sure you keep going. And he did it again. He did it again until the tenth one. He says, okay, now we're ready. You see my point? Sometimes God's got a purpose in what he's doing that's a whole lot bigger than what one guy decides. And in the case of Pharaoh, he tells him at the outset through Moses, I raised you up for this very purpose so that I can demonstrate my power through you. You're you're a clay vessel. I have a purpose in your life, and it may not be to your liking. It doesn't have to be. That's not how this works. The Lord had a plan, and he completed his plan. And the same is true here. The Lord has a message that he wants Ezekiel to deliver to Israel, and it needs to be delivered. It's going to talk about people and events that are far distant future things. God cannot afford to have his prophet give up early in the distribution of this message just because the audience of his day didn't like it. This is much bigger than them, much bigger than their needs. So in verse 9, the Lord tells Ezekiel, you're going to be as hard-headed as emery. And you could also translate the word emery in diamond. It's probably the word diamond, means a diamond. So he's got a diamond-strong hard head. And just to be clear, hard-headedness is not normally a gift from the Lord, so you cannot use this excuse when you're talking to your spouse. God did not give you this as a blessing. But in this case, he needs Ezekiel to ignore Israel's negative response. Just keep on talking. We're dealing with bigger things here than what they think. So he sums up the commission, verses 10 through 11. He says, take everything I tell you to heart, which means believe it yourself. Listen closely, which means obey it, observe it. Then he adds, go to the people of Israel and tell them these things, whether they listen or not. Dismiss none of it, change none of it, hold back none of it. Just tell them, 
thus says the Lord. Let's end with one question. What's going to be achieved in Israel when Ezekiel does what he's asked to do here? Well, first, like we heard last week, they're going to know a prophet was among them. Which is to say, they're going to know the Lord spoke to them so that they will be without defense for their sin. And the world will understand that what came against them was something that came because of the word of the Lord as a result of their sin. We'll see God's justice in it. We won't have any confusion about why it had to be. Secondly, we're learning that this unique man who received this remarkable mission at a critical time in the history of God's people had to fulfill that mission, not so much because of what it would do for that generation, but because of what it would do for all generations, because there was a bigger plan afoot in God's economy for this man. So it's about them knowing that they heard from the Lord, but it's about us understanding he was a prophet and there were things God wanted everyone to know. Now, with that background, you may assume that you have very little in common with Ezekiel. I mean, he was a very unique guy, lived in a unique time, and and so on. But don't be so sure. Because we all share in his mission to some degree, and we have a lot more in common with him in spiritual terms than you might realize. For example, you too are living at a pretty unique time, pretty critical time in the history of the world, near the end of this age. According to everything Scripture has given us, we're approaching the end when Christ's return is soon to happen. The rapture is any time, of course. And so the world out there that doesn't know the Lord is running out of time. And the church is here to help address that need. So you too have a a critical situation in which you have an audience that needs to hear things and time is short. And like the prophet Ezekiel, you also have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have been filled by God. And like Ezekiel, you are entrusted with the Word of God. But it's even better for us. Because you get everything he got, because we have the book of Ezekiel, and you got 65 other ones. A lot of which he didn't have in his day, right? You've got it all. You've got the whole counsel of God's Word. Now, you also face a lot of the same challenges he did. You have to take it to heart. You have to listen to it closely. That is, you have to live it out, and you have to have it somewhere near you that you can share it. And like him, you're going to have audiences that don't want to hear it. As I've told you many times past, I come out of a family that's largely unbelieving. For the most part, I don't really know any believers in my family, apart from my wife and kids. And so you can imagine family time around the table at Thanksgiving or Christmas or any time, really, if we ever get together. It's like us and them in our perspectives. And if we ever dare share the Word of God or anything out of the truth of God's Word, you know they're not going to want to hear it because it's immediately convicting. It puts them in a position where if they agree with you, they have to also then see themselves honestly, and no one likes to do that. Not apart from the movement of the Spirit. So we know thorns, we know thistles, we know what it's like to sit on a scorpion, so to speak, when we have these encounters. And so, if we have the same spirit, we have the same message, we live in a similar time, and we have the same challenges as we try to deliver it, then really, everything God told Ezekiel to think about in the way he performs his mission, those are things we should be thinking about. The advice would hold, wouldn't it? Don't fear the world's response. That is, in my case, my family's response, or our friends' responses. Don't be surprised when they don't listen. Say it whether they listen or not. They're probably not going to. It's just the way it works sometimes. Just say, thus says the word of the Lord. And be hard-headed about it. Be persistent. So that they can know the Lord is speaking to them. And then at the end of the day, we leave the results to the Lord. Ezekiel didn't do his mission because he was trying to convert Israel. He did his mission because he was trying to please the Lord. And he left the conversion, whoever that may be, to the Lord. That's our goal. That's what we're here to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that it is to serve you. Father, I pray that our 
Our hearts would be filled with the Word of God. Our bodies would be filled with it. We would think about it. We would speak about it. We would live it. As a Bible church father, we have a long history of studying and talking about your Word. And thank you, Father, for that legacy. But perhaps, Father, we also have a tendency to be a, doer, to be a hearer and not a doer. That is a community we may be thinking a lot about it rather than thinking about what we should do with it. We do pray, Father, that you'd make us as active in our life by what we know as we are in our study of what we learn. And I also ask, Father, that as we go about the uh, opportunity to, to teach it to others, to speak it truthfully, that you'd take away any temptation in our hearts to seek after the world's approval instead of yours. We may not always need to speak, Father. Sometimes silence is the better choice. And when we do speak, Father, we may not need to share everything that we have opportunity to share. Perhaps, Father, discretion is a better tactic to win people over at times. But when we do speak and as we speak, Father, according to your will, I pray that we would concern ourselves only with the fact that we share the truth, the way we share the truth, the consistency, the desire to share the truth, Father, just the fact that we embrace that mission for the love of other people. Because concealing it certainly is not loving, Father. Help us have the brave, the courage, Father, to do that and the desire to do that. Uh, Help equip us so that we're ready for it when the time comes, Father. Give us a sense of when it's proper. And Father, at the end of the day, let us please you. That's our goal. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.